0: Mac Power Users, Episode 240, Mac Power Users Live for February 7th, 2015. Well, welcome back to a very special episode of the Mac Power Users podcast. It's David's birthday today. Happy birthday, David.
1: Oh, I, when you said very special, I thought this might be the episode where I like take too many, you know, too many drugs or something or find marijuana cigarettes.
0: No, no, it's not uh, that kind of episode of Mac Power Users.
1: Okay. Well, thank you, Katie Floyd. It's very exciting. You know, I, I was telling a friend that it's like, oh, you got to record a podcast on your birthday. I'm like, I can't think of anything better, especially the live show with the audience. I love doing this stuff. This is great. So yeah. Uh, it's it's exciting.
0: And we should say that that very special intro um, was by our good friend, JF. Yeah.
1: Who said that just for you. Uh, what a nice guy. Yeah.
0: So, we- uh, you know,
1: it, it is funny, you know, on my birth, I don't want to get all hippie, but, you know, I really feel like like Max Barkey saved my life in a lot of ways because I was just like some guy, you know, and now I have this great, you know, people I can talk to and this this community. I mean, we are just both of us. I think we're just so lucky. I don't know how we pulled this off, but it's great.
0: Yeah, it's wonderful. Oh, and and, uh, JF's in the chat room today as well. Awesome. Awesome. So uh, hello to everybody in the chat room. We've got a great show uh, for you today. Lots of lots of feedback. Uh, But we're going to get started with a a workflow guest. Uh, Bonnie is here to join us. Hello. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. And Bonnie, you're going to have to pronounce your last name for me. Oh,
2: yes, absolutely. It is Stachowiak. And it comes from a Polish family. And you know, that is love when you take that last name. Yeah, at the grocery store, I've actually been called Sasquatch before. That was my favorite mispronunciation. (laughs) That's mean. That's rough. (laughs) Well,
0: well, welcome, Bonnie. And and we will give a a, a nod to your husband, Dave, who I I know helped a little bit getting the the audio set up here. But uh, David and, and Bonnie, you guys have actually had a chance to meet in real life a little bit.
1: Yeah, I mean Bonnie and and Dave, her husband, are are locals, and we we hang out together. We act, actually every Tuesday morning we bowl together. There's a local bowling alley.
2: <laughs> really? Okay. Yeah. Good.
1: Bonnie is a man. She's a yes. she's a heck of a bowler.
2: Absolutely. I, I need
1: I need. What do they call those railings? Those guards? What they call it? You know, the bumpers. The bumper. <laughs> yeah, bowling. The, I need the bumpers, yeah. and sometimes I even get the little thing you put the ball and it wheels down. You know, just because I just don't feel like you know mailing it in. But Bonnie, man, she's she's really good.
0: Well, Bonnie, when when you're not bumper bowling with Dave um, yes. and, and David Sparks, what do you do in real life?
2: Well, I am a professor of business and management at a small liberal arts college out here in Orange County, California. It's called Vanguard University.
1: And, and you know, it was funny cause Bonnie and I actually we have met. And that's when she first told me that she said, I'm a professor of business, which I'm like, OK, I get that. And then she said, at a liberal arts school, <laughs> and I'm like that must be fun because you're really bringing something to the, the students that, that's not really their wheelhouse. Right.
2: Well, and what it really translates into, which is wonderful, is that I get to focus on teaching. My focus is not on research as it is at larger institutions. I get to focus on teaching and I love getting to walk by student's side when they're discovering what it is they want to do and starting to get some identification of their skills. It's really fun.
1: And also, Bonnie, you're a geek, which is is why you're here. And uh, you had sent in this great workflow that you're doing. So, you know, and I know we have a lot of educators listening to the show, both in uh, higher education and even just like elementary school, high school. Um, So let's just dig in. Tell us what you're up to.
2: Well, one of the things that happens and this workflow works for grading, which I'll be talking about, but it also works for exchanging feedback in the business context, too. And what happens with grading or when we ask somebody in the business world to give us feedback is it can be kind of a sensitive process. We can be somewhat vulnerable. So with grading, I wanted to help my students and my colleagues when they asked me for feedback. I wanted to have there be as little of miscommunication as possible And when we only have our words to see, it's hard because they can be really misconstrued. So I wanted to be able to show here's what I'm talking about and here's how you could make that better. Here's what was really strong about this part. And they love being able to hear my voice. So I started experimenting with workflows that would allow them to hear my voice and see their work at the same time. So I decided to experiment with screencasting. And I thought about I have actually still am thinking about doing some research on it, because anecdotally, I hear so much from students saying, I love getting to hear your voice. And it seems to kind of lower their, their sense of uncomfortableness with getting feedback. And in fact, there was a study recently, of, it's actually going to be released any day now of 126 students and that study showed that the students in that w- research found that video feedback was more real, authentic, and honest. Although I thought it was kind of funny because they also said it was awkward with the eye contact with the professor. And anyone who does work in front of a webcam, it's kind of weird to be looking at the webcam, but also trying to look at the person who's talking. So I think screencasting is the best of all worlds.
1: You know, I, I when you think about text as a form of communication... It lacks a lot of context and it's very easy, especially when it's someone who has authority over you, like a teacher or a boss, um, to read text and put a ugly voice or context to it that's not appropriate. I mean, it even happens just between people every day when they send each other text messages. You know, you can send somebody a joke and really offend them because they don't understand the context of the joke or the delivery. Like maybe you're being ironic and they don't understand. So I can see why this would really be helpful for students. Now, um, so how are you going about doing it? What applications are you using?
2: Well, when I first started doing it, and I actually heard about this on your show, I went right away with tapes. And that's at usetapes.com, but there'll be a link in the show notes. Yep. And that application, you, you it lived up to its promise. It's easy. It's fast. You record a, cre- a screencast quickly just by dragging an area of your screen that you want to record. And as soon as you're done, it copies it to the clipboard and it's ready to paste. So I and thought they- that...
1: Go ahead. I
2: thought that was my go to, except that it has a storage limitation and they don't really pronounce it very heavily on their website when you go to buy it. So I didn't know it, but it's 60 minutes per month. Oh,
0: which for most people,
3: either.
2: yeah, for but, most people, that's plenty. But for my case, it's just not enough.
0: Yeah, because I tell you, 90 plus percent of the time I'm using that app. Uh, I use it quite a bit to some like bug reports to developers saying, hey, this isn't quite working. Here's an example. But for for little, you know, tech support things to people who send me stuff, you know, they write into Mac Power users. Hey, how did you do this? I say, OK, well, well, here's a quick clip of how I did it. But yeah, 60 minutes per month. If you're doing a lot of screencasting, you're going to you're going to run into that.
2: I kept hitting that limit, and I, t- I tweeted back and forth with them, and they just don't have a business model yet to go beyond that. So I started to experiment with ScreenFlow, and you've talked about ScreenFlow on your show, too. It's got extensive features. In fact, you could even have a video of yourself doing a picture-in-picture picture while you showed it, so there's a yeah. lot of upside there, but it's so complex, and it takes too much time to produce each little segment. So what I finally landed on was Tech Smith's Snagit. Okay. And Snagit's great because if you're in a university or in the, a business, it's on a Mac and on a PC. So if you wanted to have this as a solution for multiple people giving feedback, it would allow you to have it on both platforms. And it's great because it's sort of like tapes in the sense of you just click a button to record drag what part of your screen you want to record and off you're off and running and then you just click one button where you want to upload it and i was actually using google drive because i thought that was one of my only options and just last night i discovered the little dot 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 button i can upload to dropbox too they've got dropbox <laughs> evernote youtube yeah it's great and the only downside to using Snagit versus tapes is is that you have to wait until it uploads the full thing, until you get that link automatically copied in your clipboard. So it does take a little bit of time. But what I do in the meantime is I have a text expander snippet that I've built. And that brings it up where I can, as soon as it does copy in the the link of the screencasted feedback, I can paste it into a fill-in snippet. And then I also copy a link from the Dropbox folder that has the tracked changes on their word document with my comments in there. And also a highlighted and filled in PDF rubric. And I use PDF pen to add annotations into a rubric and highlight things and things like that.
1: Bonnie, you are a geek. I love it.
2: I'm a bit of a geek. And speaking of which one last note is I, I, um, was trying to even make it faster because i've got some issues with a little carpal tunnel syndrome going on and i every click matters to me and so it occurred to me it would be great to be able to have a roster of students and have those rosters just paste into folders and i thought i can't be the only person that's ever thought of this so i posted on on your mac power users uh, google plus community oh yeah that's a
0: great resource
2: Within five minutes, I had tons of ideas and I posted a link to the, the post if anyone else wants to check it out, including a post from Brett Terpstra, a solution he has called Folderize.
1: Yeah. So you're looking to create folders out of the list of names. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. AppleScript would see, seem like probably the easiest, but how, how did you end up doing it?
2: I haven't done it yet. I'm, I I was saving it <laughs> to to try out, but I think I think you're right that Apple Script will do it. And this Brett Terpstra solution looks like a good possibility too.
1: Brett is so awesome. In fact, Brett is yeah. also one of the tips we had sent into us this week was something I also got from Brett a while ago, oh, too. Great. Um, now, Bonnie, I'd like to wind back just a little bit because you went through that one workflow pretty quickly. Sure. Like one of the questions I had, you said in addition to sending the video link, uh, you also send a link to the Word document with track changes. Yeah. Now, how are you grabbing the link for that? Are you doing? Are you automating that or are you just manually clicking and, and grabbing the link from Dropbox?
2: I'm manually right-clicking on it and choosing to copy the link, the share link
1: see that's the next thing i'm thinking how can we figure that out for her so she doesn't even have to do that i bet there's a way i bet there's a way anyway i'll have to think about that
0: well we'll have a solution or, in our one, of our one
1: of our listeners uh, <laughs> has already soon. thought of it and is right now banging his head against a dashboard in a car saying come on sparks you should do this <laughs> but uh yeah pull let me over know.
0: email us <laughs> yeah
1: don't, don't do it while you're driving <laughs> and we'll
0: send the solution on to bonnie
1: or even just what is it? Um, ask MPU, send it in. Put put us. Put
0: yeah, us on you can your list. you can do a tweet with the hashtag Ask MPU. In fact, we got a couple of those later in the show.
1: All right. Um, well, Bonnie, that's great. And so now, how are your students reacting to this professor that that she's? Um, She's so smart about the technology where all the other professors aren't. I mean, is it scare them? I would imagine it scares them a little bit, you know, a little intimidating.
2: (laughs) This is where you see a pretty big generation gap. So I do teach occasionally in a doctoral program, sometimes with people that are older than me. I'm in my forties and that to them, it's always kind of a, Oh, this is all too big for me. And I try to change the mindset because I don't, I mean, yes, I've been in technology for a while, but there's always people that are so far beyond me. But if you just go incrementally a little bit at a time and say, well, this is taking up too much time. I wonder if there's another way to do it. There's a lot of research actually in the world of education right now about mindset. And if we believe that we can't, no, we're not going to be able to. So I try to evolve their thinking to be Well, no, maybe you can't right now, but you certainly could. (laughs) And what would be the resources you would need to be able to increase your your technical skills? So that's fun for me to do with sometimes people that are in my generation or a a little bit more experienced seasons, as we say. (laughs) And then for the younger students, they tend to sometimes think of themselves as technical when, in fact, they're really not that technical. If you look at like Mozilla has a really good list of competencies for digital literacy and that's, I mean, yes, they're comfortable sharing their lives. You know, they'll do selfies in a minute. But as far as the actual competencies that I think people need to have to be successful in the 21st century, they're sometimes lacking. So I try to bring them up when I meet them, too.
1: And, Ronnie, you, you just nailed the entire purpose of the Mac Power users. I mean, we try to start sometimes with a little bit of basics. But by the end of it, our listeners are super geeks and we love it. Um, you know, one last thing I'm thinking is now. You can't obviously can't put it on YouTube or something because this is comments between a teacher and a student. You don't want it out there. Um, Do you have like a a hazel rule or something? What do you do with these these video files when you're done with them? I mean, how long do you keep them?
2: Well, Um, since I just yeah, since I just refined this and in fact, I was mentioning to my husband this morning at breakfast that i didn't know that that dropbox solution exists because we pay for dropbox so we have much more storage than the free version but my google drive right now i think yeah yeah, my free google drive was starting to get filled so i am going to have to figure out what my archival system is i think probably a couple months after class is over i can go in and probably write a hazel rule now that i think about it (laughs) and and have it automatically dump it yeah
1: yeah
2: that's a good idea or even just
1: like at the end of the semester You could run a Hazel Rulers. I mean, there's there's a lot of things you could do. Yeah. Anyway, Bonnie, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing this with us. And thanks um, for having me. We'll have to. I'll see you on Tuesday.
0: Yes. For bowling.
1: bowling. (laughs) Maybe I'll get a new bowling ball for my birthday. You know, (laughs) try it without the bumpers this week. I'm going to be brave. Yeah. All right. Say hi to Dave and we'll see you soon. See you soon. Bonnie's great.
0: She is, yeah. Her,
1: her and Dave are just a great couple. To tell you the truth, I, I really have met them for meals, and they're just so much fun. Um, let's take a break before we go on and talk about our first sponsor today, and uh, that is our friends over at Harry's. So the holidays are over. Now is your chance to get a fresh start, making smarter decisions in 2015, and maybe one of them is to stop overpaying for drugstore razor blades uh, that really aren't that great, and take a big dent out of your wallet. Harry's is, you know, the company for the modern age. They decided to cut out all the middlemen, make a great product and sell it to you directly over the internet. So make the switch to Harry's. They're high quality German engineered blades that are crafted for sharpness and precision. They, they literally just went and bought the factory in Germany. They found the people making the right stuff and they bought it. So they cut, they cut that piece out of the transaction. And as a result, they're able to sell them for half the price of big name drugstore brands. I mean, there's a reason why when you go to the drugstore to buy Ray's, They got to go to like a locked vault to get them because they charge so much. And this is free shipping straight to your door. Once you sign up for Harry's, like you can get into the the monthly program. They just mail it to you automatically or get them as you need them it was started by two guys that are passionate about creating better shaving experience. And I've been using Harry's now for, I don't know, Katie, I've kind of lost track about a year and I really love them. I, I use it all the time. It's kind of fun, you know, going old school, just doing a, a razor blade. And uh, it, it's just really great. It gives you a better shave and, it does the job. You know, by cutting out the middleman, they can offer the amazing shave at a fraction of the price. So they ship the blades right to your front door. Uh, their starter is just $15. And that includes the razor, three blades, and your choice of the shave cream or the show, uh, foaming shave gel. So depending on which one you want. And as an added bonus, you get $5 off if you use the code Mac Power. So that's M-A-C-P-O-W-E-R. Get you 5 bucks off. After using that code, you can get an entire month's worth of shaving for just 10 bucks, and you can support our show, which we very much appreciate the shipping is free and the satisfaction is guaranteed so, so go over to harrys.com now and check it out you get five dollars off with that code mac power m-a-c-p-o-w-e-r and there's no space there uh, with your first purchase at harrys.com and enter the coupon code get yourself a nice set of razors give it a month i bet you'll end up signing up like i did thanks harrys
0: so we got a little bit of feedback About personal finance and apps that people are using? I mean, not much, just a little. (laughs) Yeah, a little. And we will now proceed to spend the next hour and a half talking about, no, I'm just kidding. We're not. Well,
1: I I think that the volume of feedback is interesting because this is not, you know, the reason why that show was always hard for us to, to agree to do is because we like to do shows where we can give you actual solutions and say, okay, this is the one you want and this is why. And we nobody had that solution for the finance finance apps because I really don't believe there is a single solution. But we did, I think, a good job of covering the pluses and minuses of several. Uh, what we did say also in that show was that, you know, we don't use all of those applications because we're not going to track our finances through 12 apps. You know, as much as we love everybody, neither one of us have time to do that and, right. and the energy. And so what we got was a lot of people writing in that have been in the weeds with these applications. And so we got some really great feedback about pluses and minuses for some of those apps that we covered. So without further ado, I think we should just start going through some of this.
0: Yeah, and we got this feedback from a couple of people, but Lane wrote in to say, uh, and something actually I did not know, so thank you people for, for raising this, that um, I use Quicken Essentials and that we both discussed other applications, and a few downsides was that they did not allow for importing transactions from financial institutions. Uh, Lane also used Quicken Essentials, and he just received a notice from them. I actually did not receive this notice, probably because I didn't give them my email address, that as of April 1st, 2015, they are going to Discontinue the ability to import transactions from financial institutions. Um, I will mention that Quicken 2015 is currently on sale, and there's a link to that in the show notes. I do not know how long that lasts. It's on sale about half off, which is around $35, $40. Um, So if you're interested in upgrading, it seems like if you want to continue to do that automatic sync, you're going to have to go to Quicken 2015. But I will tell you that the reviews of that aren't stellar, and uh, we're going to hear some more from our listeners about that as well. So that's pretty disappointing to see that Intuit's just basically removing this feature, this ability to sync to the bank, saying, if you want to continue, go ahead and, and here's a forced upgrade.
1: But you know, on the side of Quicken uh for Mac twenty fifteen, we heard from several people that that trashed it, frankly, in their uh, emails. But we heard from a couple that liked it. And David wrote in saying that he thought Y and A B, you know, you need a budget as a great application, especially for the envelope system, and he had used it. But he started uh going, he just wanted a simple register, so he went ahead and got quicken for Mac twenty fifteen, and he says it's working well for him. So um it wasn't universal disdain for Quicken, uh uh, twenty fifteen
0: yeah um and David mentioned that he bought quicken two thousand and fifteen for Mac uh, from a digital download from amazon that's actually where I bought it as well. I did not realize, thanks to somebody in the Mac Power users community who posted the link that it was on sale direct from quicken it was a little bit cheaper on sale from quicken, but if it's not on sale, then Amazon uh, Direct download seems to have the best price for it
1: yeah uh Steve wrote in and um he says that it was the first time he contacted us, and we always love hearing from people for the first time. Uh, but he started using iBank a few months ago, and he loves it. And he talked about how he had been using VMware to run Quicken products because he just refused to use the uh, the Intuit Mac solutions. Uh, but he found them lacking. He tried uh, Mint and Personal Capital, but he just didn't like to to do that stuff. He couldn't get past some of the online security. So he said that he's going to go with iBank and he's very much a fan of it. And we heard from a lot of people that really like iBank. And when I was doing the Ledger type uh, money management on my Mac, iBank was the app that I used. Uh, So I think we heard a lot more love for iBank from listeners than we did for Quicken.
0: Yeah, we did. Although we also did get this uh, comment from Bob that I do want to play for you now.
4: Hi, Katie and David. Thank you for your recent podcast focused on personal finance. It was very enjoyable and informative. Since the demise of Quicken, I've struggled along with so many others uh, with the stripped-down version of Intuit product, but it just didn't work for me. So the quest began for the Quicken alternative, and a few years ago, I settled on iBank as my money app. It had most of the features of Quicken, and it has performed reasonably well. However, it isn't the ultimate answer. The downloading of data from my bank is one area that almost works, but in the end doesn't. Katie mentioned on the show that when she tried iBank, she couldn't automatically import bank records without a fee. Well... This is true, but you can import the records for free using iBank's built-in browser. And it's a good thing that the import isn't automatic because iBank does a poor job of tagging the transactions with proper categories and doesn't deal with the nomenclature used by bank for some entries, resulting in many duplications and manually having to resort and tag all of the, the imported transactions. So it works, but not as well as Quicken iBank has several other quirks that I've learned to live with. For for instance, entering a new transaction in an account using a keyboard shortcut doesn't place the new entry at the end of the ledger. It gets stuck with a random date earlier in the ledger. Once I correct this, all further entries are handled correctly, but then close iBank and start up again, all over again. Budgeting is another problem, and I've given up. I just use a spreadsheet. And finally, the reporting engine is not flexible, and I cannot modify the reports or create reports like I did in Quicken. I've looked at Man- MoneyDance and a few others, but nothing provides the features. So I've even considered going back to Quicken, but the price is too steep. So the quest goes on. Thanks for the show. Talk to you soon.
1: You know, it's funny how Bob's uh, comments just kind of reflect our lack of enthusiasm for any single product here.
0: Yeah. And I think Tim kind of, um, repeats some of that because he wants to let us know that he started using an, an app called Ledger. And I put a link to that in the show notes. And it's a command line program yeah, where you love, keep your, I love this. Yeah, I love this. You, you keep your information in a plain text file and it reads it and gives you reports. Um, and then you can even add uh, an ability to um, import uh, CSV files. There's another package uh, called Ledger Auto Sync that will get data from your bank. Um, he says, obviously, this is a power user program, but it's like when all else fails and you just want to keep your stuff in plain text, there's there's an app for that as well.
1: I'm doing it in the terminal. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure a whole lot of people are going to want that, but I, just the fact that this exists to me is, is kind of awesome. We'll definitely put links in it if you're out there and you're interested, you can go check it out, but I suspect we won't have a whole lot of people using it. Um, Tyler wrote in and, you know, cause uh, you know, I was talking to, during the show about, you know, how accountants love QuickBooks. Well, Tyler decided to set me straight. He says, I am an accountant and I hate everything to do with Intuit. <laughs> so, um, you know, I would recommend anything, besides QuickBooks for small business. So it, it sounds like not all accountants love into it. And um, he was talking about for his personal finances, he uses iBank and he's he pays the $40 per year for the sink and it's working great for him. So, you know, it just depends. And, and one of the points he made is, you know, most banks should be able to support this. He said he has a medium-sized regional bank that is able to handle it for him. So there you go. Um, uh, I guess there's just you know, once again, nobody's really happy with any of these solutions to a great ex- extent. And we didn't really go into the whole QuickBooks thing because, you know, businesses really need kind of more power than the standard personal finance management. But that stuff is just as bad on the Mac, if not even worse.
0: Uh, getting off of the uh, QuickBooks into it uh iBank thing. Uh, Todd did write in about MoneyWell, saying that he's been using MoneyWell for a while now and it met his needs. But he did want to know that the app is a little bit in transition, uh, and I was not aware of this, so I wanted to bring it to your attention as well. Uh, Apparently, the original developer took a position with Apple last summer and sold the company uh, to a new developer. And there's a little wishy-washy about what the future plans are for updates. Uh, the new developer has said that they are going to work on it, and certainly we hope that it continues to be developed because obviously this is an area where people are still looking for a, a good solution. Uh, but we'll we'll wait to see. Uh, Todd says he may switch back to iBank if if MoneyWell stays stagnant. So. Uh, we'll see about that.
1: It's kind of funny when you find an app like this has happened to me with several iOS apps that I really liked and and they suddenly stop development and I'll write the guy to say, hey, what's going on? And and they'll write back and say, yeah, I'm working, you know, I'm, I'm working on the pages team now, or something. Yeah. They got, you know, they Apple saw that they were doing something great and hired
0: them. Yeah. Uh, and then there's the YNAB folks <laughs> and um, a lot of love out there for YNAB. Uh, let's hear a bit from Anna Marie.
3: Hello, Katie and David. This is Anna Marie in Vermont. Thank you so much for what you do for Mac Power users. So I wanted to say I was a little disappointed in the way you covered YNAB. I'm glad it made your list, but still I go back with financial software to Quicken before 1992. I loved Quicken for a long time and then gave it up when they gave us up. Uh, have been wandering, trying out various programs ever since. found YNAB about six months ago, eight months ago now, and I just love it because it is so Mac-friendly, and it behaves like you would expect a financial management piece of software to do. So I hope that you will actually give it a try, and maybe you might actually interview Jesse on about it. It's just such a good program. Graham, Thank you so much. Peace. Bye.
1: We also heard from Liz who says a hearty amen to you need a budget. And, uh, she says her husband and her went through a financial course together and they wanted an envelope system. They picked this up and she, she wrote at some length that it's just amazing. And she said, you know, you should really give it a try. And, and, you know, Anna Marie and Liz were not alone. This is probably the, uh, of all the apps we talked about, in terms of feedback, this one is the one that had the most positive, And I can't think of really any negative about it, except a few people who said they just didn't want to use the Envelope system. So as a result, I'm going to download this application and try and incorporate it into my life. And I'll report back because the Mac Power users have spoken that, that I need to try this out. So I'm, I'm in, Katie. I'm going to be giving this a shot.
0: Yeah, and obviously we couldn't put all of the feedback that that we received. We we tried to give you a, a pretty good cross section, and and there were some positives and there were some negatives about all of the different uh, applications that we talked about. So I, I think the story here is there's still work to be done.
1: Yeah, and uh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, there's a couple stories. One is there's different types of systems. There's the ledger versus the envelope system, which seems to be a dividing line for a lot of people. And I guess the other story is. Uh, I think Quicken was such a powerhouse for so long that nobody else really got into the game. And uh I think that's that's probably another thing that's going to change.
0: Right. Is well, it, and it? and as they're pointing out in the in the chat room as well, a lot of it depends on where you are in your life and how complex your finances are. You know, what is it that you need to track? You know, for for couples and families, it may be a very different situation than it is for a single person. I mean, are you are you trying to track investment counts? Or are you just trying to keep your bank ledger in balance? You know, a lot of it depends.
1: the The other thing that's interesting to me is what we didn't get is a lot of email saying that I would be crazy to use mint or personal capital. And, you know, because I I talked in the show about how I've been playing with those as those online solutions. And in the past, anytime I've mentioned those, I I do get angry emails from accountants or financial professionals saying that that's a bad idea. We didn't get any of that this time. I, I don't recall getting a single email critical of these online financial solutions.
0: Uh, we did hear from Bruce about uh, loyalty cards, because remember, we did talk about more in that episode uh, than just personal finance software. In fact, I think it was only the last 15 or 20 minutes that we we talked about personal finance software. Uh, and Bruce had a really good idea. Uh, we talked about various methods for backing up your loyalty cards, especially if you want to keep them digitally on your phone. And, and Bruce said, you know, my backup is physical. I keep them in an envelope in my desk and I don't carry them around. And that seems like the best solution to me. Uh, and my response was kind of, uh, yeah, duh, that seems like a pretty good solution. Uh, but Bruce also had a pretty good credit card strategy. We talked about having, uh, you know, maybe one and a backup or depending on what people do. He said, my wife and I have used this strategy for years and it's paid off a couple of times. He said, we have three cards, a primary that we both carry and then we each carry a both s- – but we each both carry a different secondary card. Uh, When her wallet got stolen while traveling, then we each still had one good card. When the primary got locked up, when I was off in the woods somewhere, then she still had a good card. And he said, and actually, I actually have a fourth card that is buried in my travel kit, along with $40 in cash and a backup photo ID. He said, it's one of those passport cards that you can get now. So if I'm off traveling, which I do frequently, I still have a good card and an ID to get on a plane, which is likely also good enough to get a replacement passport and enough cash for a meal or a cab ride. And I have an omni task to check this dash periodically. Um, and that's a good idea. I guess I, ne- I don't travel as often, but uh, I like the idea of having a backup photo ID. I actually didn't realize that you could do that. So I may need to look into that.
1: I just like the whole idea of this, like, travel package yeah. I mean, I grew up reading spy novels. I would I would definitely have a couple like extra passports from different countries, maybe some psychic paper you know. that
0: that that may not be legal.
1: Yeah, but I, I would have it anyway. OK, some some bearer bonds. Definitely.
0: When folks and this will conclude the run of Mac Power users because <laughs> David's about to be arrested. <laughs>
1: Um, it's actually a really good idea to have something if you're going to be going on a trip to, you know, not only have your Evernote folder, your Dropbox folder, but have some physical stuff, uh, that has got, you know, got you covered if you get into trouble. Okay. Well, we, we also heard about, uh, currency and, um, and Brian wrote, and he says, I think that we overlook the downside to currency is that it requires debit card transaction. Unlike credit card transactions, which are ag- aggregated on a monthly bank statement, debit card change charges appear on as individual transactions. So if you reconcile your bank statement automatically, uh, you're going to have, as a, a lot of people do, currency will significantly complicate the monthly reconciliation of bank statements for a lot of folks. On the flip side... Uh, I, actually, before I move on to the flip side, Brian also said that uh, what surprises him is that you know, Katie Floyd uses a debit card when banks offer free credit line, if you use a credit card and pay it down every month.
0: I have and comments that it, about that.
1: Oh, do you? OK, well, I let's, have
0: many comments. Can, I, I, can wanna, I go ahead?
1: Let me do my flip side first, because I just want to uh, talk. I heard from a couple people, people. Um, I'm not sure they came to the feedback line, but I just got personal emails from some of our listeners that run retail stores. And they said, hey, you know. Don't overlook how much money it costs the small guys with the credit card transaction fees. They're actually quite expensive, you know. Don't just dismiss that. And that's a very good point. I know that, you know, when you're operating a business and everything every penny counts, somebody who gets four percent of every year of your transaction, that can really hurt. And I didn't mean to be dismissive of that and I, I get it. But um anyway, so now Katie, what was your point on uh on um Brian's statement?
0: I have two points. Okay. One is I would like to point out that Brian used the word automagically, not David. And yeah. um, please don't use that word. Uh, oh, I'm
1: sorry. I take it back.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I'm talking to Brian, not yours. It's just it's one of those that is like nails on a chalkboard to me. So okay. a- Automatically, not a real word. Don't use it. Um, okay. So now s- I
1: know in the future I if I need to push a button, that's one of them.
0: Yeah, automatically. Oh. We we okay. had a we we had a lady come in for training about a new software package we were using in the office, and every yeah. time she meant to say automatically, she said automatically, and I just thought that I was going to scream.
1: But anyway, if you if you ever want to do that to me, just start talking about how Kenny G is a jazz musician, and I will I will literally crawl the walls.
0: Okay. Well, my mom has several Kenny G CDs in her car. Not Katie. So. I'm
1: I'm not kidding. <laughs>
0: Um, And then, you know, what Brian said is what surprises me is that even a smart lady like Katie Floyd uses a debit card when banks offer free lines of credit. And if you use a credit card and pay it down every month. Well, okay, so here's the thing. Um, I I think when you use a credit card versus a debit card, there are certainly reasons to use a credit card. There's certainly security related reasons to use a credit card. But here's the thing. A lot of people miss that pain point when you use a credit card. And many smart people have gotten into trouble by using credit cards. You know, you, you use a credit card and sometimes you don't feel that as much as when you use a debit card and the money is just gone from your account. And, and when I make a purchase, I want to make sure that I feel that purchase. You know, whether I'm buying a burrito or, you know, whether I'm buying a, a china cabinet, I want to feel that purchase and know that that money is gone from my account. And too easy, too often it's easy for people to pull out a piece of plastic and swipe the plastic and then not emotionally connect with the fact that they've just spent a certain sum of money. And uh, I think it's easier to feel that pain when you do it with a debit card and see that bank balance immediately drop than you do with a credit card. And credit cards certainly can offer you some protections. Debit cards, if used correctly, can offer you similar types of protections. But I would just point out, A lot of people have gotten a lot of smart people have gotten into a lot of trouble uh, using credit cards. So be careful. Okay, that's all I have to say about that.
1: Yeah. All right. Um, So I think we uh, we've got a lot more feedback on some other topics. Why don't we take a break and do our next ad spot?
0: So our next sponsor, uh, something I have many nice things to say about, um, is our good friends over at Smile. And I want to talk a little bit about Text Expander. Uh, Text Expander for the Mac is probably, if I had to pick one of my most used applications on the Mac. And I love how it just sits in the background. And I really don't even know that it's there. It just pops up and it makes life so much better because I just type keys on my Mac and just words start to appear. And I don't even realize that I'm doing it. You know, for example, if I'm composing an email, I'll type a string of letters and an entire block of text will come out in front of me. Or if I accidentally mistype a word that I commonly misspell, I've already got a text expander snippet pre-populated that's going to correct that spelling error for me. And I really started to notice this. When I was running in a VM at the office more frequently and was wondering, man, why is this not working? Why, why is our words not coming out the way that I want them to come out? And why is this text not looking the way that I want to? And I realized text expander doesn't work on the PC. And so I had to install one of those text expander um, for Windows type apps over on the PC side and have it sync up with text expander. And then life got so much better. But it just made me realize how much I've come to depend on text expander for Mac. It can do things with a a few strokes of your keyboard, like insert standard greetings and text and signatures, including formatted text and pictures if you want to. Uh, You can save thousands of keystrokes by typing these short abbreviations and getting these long snippets. And then you can even use more advanced snippets so you can have fill in fields and drop, uh, move your clipboard around and insert your clipboard and move the cursor. And all of these snippets uh, sync uh, through the magic of Dropbox. So you can use these snippets on multiple devices like multiple Macs uh, or even on your iOS devices with their text expander touch application. And then that's where the real magic starts to work. So you can go check it out and even get a free trial uh, by going to smilesoftware.com slash MPU. Uh, Text Expander for Mac is only $34.95, and on iOS it's only $4.99. So go download the free trial, and it will just work wonders for you. So thank you to Smile for their longtime support of the show.
1: Uh, we heard from uh, an anonymous friend because uh, we talked a, a bit about the show about you know charitable giving and saying hey you know Apple will match employee donations so if you're going to give some money to something like App Camp for girls or whatever uh, you can make that happen and um and that there's a bigger thing there I mean if you're going to do charitable giving you should look if you're working for you know any company if they'll match as well I know that a lot of companies do that.
0: Yeah. So um, this anonymous friend says that Apple will now match donations to AppCamp for girls. And so thank you for getting that set up. And so if you're an Apple, obviously this only works for Apple employees, but if you're an Apple employee.
1: There's a surprising number of Apple employees that listen to this show. I was on the Apple campus and met a bunch of people. And it, you know, You know, it's funny in my head, I think everybody that works at Apple already knows all this stuff and is like massive power users. But that's not really true. A lot of these people are, are trying to get figure this stuff out, just like the rest of us.
0: Right. Um And then we got some, some feedback about our uh, family tech support show. And I cannot believe that we missed this. So uh, thank you, Sean, for helping yeah. us out. And let's this hear from This is the you.
5: embarrassing one. It is. If you want to know. I,
0: I blame you, David.
5: Okay. I'll take that. Hi, David and Katie. This is Sean. Um just leaving you a message in regards to uh, the products you were talking about to allow remote access to um, a Mac for maybe helping someone with tech support, et cetera, a family member. And I didn't hear anyone mention Apple's implementation for accessing um, a remote Mac through uh, iMessage. Seemed like this was uh, not uh, talked about very much and seemed like it's a pretty Easy way to do that. Um, You have to have the um, new Yosemite operating system and iOS 8. But um, I've tried it out, and it actually works pretty well. Where you can not only uh, have someone just uh, look at your screen, but you can actually um, go one level up and have um, give someone access to your Mac to do um, anything you want to do. And Then, if you happen to have QuickTime Pro installed, you can um, plug in your iOS device, and you um, could—I can't remember if you have the ability to share um, control, but you can basically show someone remotely um, an iOS device's screen, and you could basically— have give some directions as to at least how to you know access features or do something that they don't know how to do so i saw that this was worth mentioning Um, i love your show keep doing the good work thank you thanks sean you know i guess in my defense
1: this wasn't very good a few years ago and i just hadn't gone back to look at it and we got several uh, pieces of feedback you know saying hey Hey guys, what the heck? How'd you miss that? And so I went and started using it. I test out with my wife and it is way better now. And it's built in. You don't have to buy anything. And I would almost say that's the first step for you. Uh if you're looking to do some remote, you know, help with a family member or a friend.
0: Right. Well, first thing you do is you get them upgraded to Yosemite and then yeah. boom, you've got it. You set yourself up as a, as a contact, which you probably already are. And, and now you've got it. The, the one thing I will question is, is Sean mentioned, and, and if you weren't paying attention, you may have missed it at the end there, that with the new version of QuickTime in Yosemite, you can also share the screen of your iOS device. And he mentioned that was a QuickTime Pro feature. I'm not sure that it is. I think it may be built into no. all of QuickTime.
1: Yeah. It, it works across QuickTime.
0: Right. And I don't think you have the ability to control an iOS device, but where this is cool um, is that if you're trying to remotely help someone, uh, you can view the screen of your iOS device using QuickTime on your Mac and then have someone remote in and view your Mac. And so then they'll be able to see your iOS device screen and then talk you through whatever it is you're trying to do.
1: I say scroll down and see that button that says it's a lot easier when you can see the screen at the same time the person, the recipient person can see it. Uh, Nathaniel wrote in about mypermissions.org. He said, listening to the show about auditing your online accounts and only using logins you feel comfortable with reminded him of mypermissions.org. It's a web service, but they also have an app for iOS and Android. He says, it allows you to see who has access to your accounts. For example, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Google, and then it gives you the option to revoke access. I, I think that's a really good idea. Um, you know, you, the, you give access to so many different people for these accounts as you start using your computer, it's very easy to quickly forget how many you have. Also, if you don't want to use like a third party service, most of these services uh, will have a screen somewhere on their website that shows you all the accesses you've provided. And you can go in and uncheck those as well there.
0: Yeah. Uh, and George, our friend George, who's been on the show a couple of times, wrote in and wanted to clarify file vault And I think it was the last MPU live show where someone was asking, is there any reason why I shouldn't use FileVault? And we're talking, of course, about FileVault 2, which has been around for the last several versions of the OS. And I I knew as as soon as I started rambling that I was going to get myself into trouble. But the point that I was trying to make is there's really at this point no reason, although asterisk, stay tuned in a minute, that you shouldn't use FileVault because backup works, time machine works, making a clone works, all of these things work. And then I proceeded to tell you something about how FileVault encrypts and decrypts your drive when you log in. And George said, I just wanted to clarify the statement that Katie's made in the family tech support show that logging in does not actually decrypt the drive. It mounts it through an interface that allows you to live read the encrypted data as if it were unencrypted from within your logged in user se- uh, session, but the drive itself remains encrypted the entire time. He says, this is a subtle, but important distinction because since if you just cut off power, you would not be leaving the drive unencrypted. So, um, IE, if, if you have a desktop Mac or if you have a laptop that runs out of power, um, then all of a sudden, uh, you, your drive will still be encrypted. So someone can't just start it back up and, and use your stuff. So that's an important distinction to know, but I still stand by from a practical standpoint. After the time that you you log in, you're going to be using your Mac just as though it is unencrypted. So things like backups and, and functioning from an everyday standpoint are going to continue to work. Although Bill did raise an interesting question saying that I've stated several times there's no reason not to use FileVault 2 on a Mac. But he said, uh, suppose I've got a Mac server and I go away thinking that my FileVault vaulted, Mac will keep running, serving iTunes, email, etc. And while I'm away, the power goes out. Now, I've already checked the box in Energy Saver Preference pane to reboot the Mac after a power failure. But when power returns and the Mac reboots, it won't get past the unlock screen and the OS will never load. As far as I can tell, there's no way to SSH remotely in or any way to get around this. Uh, Someone will have to be at the computer to enter the password. Uh, there, one option would perhaps be to turn off File Vault for the duration of a vacation or the time that I'm going to be away. Um, but th- as long as the Mac is still password protected, I don't see a downside except the hassle of t- enabling and disabling File Vault every time I go away.
1: Um, so Christine, he got me there. Yeah, well, that it, we found a reason, and you know, th- so George clarifies that File Vault's even better than I thought it was. I, for some reason, I don't know why I would think that it automatically. Decrypt decrypts the entire drive.
0: Yeah, but but uh, here's one potential. So let me tell you how I get around that a little bit on my Mac with File Vault, my Mac mini server. Um, you know, I've, I'm in Florida here, David, and as you realized from your brief vacation here that we have some lightning and some power outages. Uh, I put mine on a UPS, and I've got enough juice in that UPS to to run it for about 20 to 30 minutes without power. And I'll tell you that 99% of the time, that's enough to to get me that my Mac's not going to lose power and, and not be able to you know, that the power will be re- restored before the UPS runs out. So that gets me by almost all of the time. But if we did have an extended power outage where the UPS ran out and then my Mac ultimately ran out, then yes i would I would be in that situation. I, I will say though that there is a way for newer Macs that you can re- if you need to log in and restart a file vault encrypted Mac uh there's a terminal command to do that um but that doesn't help you if the mac is actually dead
1: the um the, and the you know the flip side of, of bill's comment is if you don't leave it on and you leave your house your data is unencrypted so yeah. you
0: know so i guess I mean,
1: that's, that, that's just, not something to discount you, know?
0: you just got to weigh the pros and cons of it i mean yeah. if if this is a a server and all you're doing is serving iTunes then maybe that's not that big of a deal. But if you've got, if you're serving mail on it, I'm probably going to want to encrypt it.
1: I, I liked the next uh, email we got from Christine. And this is just one of the reasons why I love this show is because our listeners, they're just, you know, they're they're awesome. So she, we talked about OpenDNS. And my big, big thing in the family tech support show was OpenDNS is a way to put a wall up around the internet for, for my house. And so anybody in my house is not going to get to websites that that I don't think are appropriate for kids because I have a lot of kids in my house all the time. Um, And and so Christine said, well, I wanted to try it, but I was worried about the speed. So she went and found this app called Namebench that will conduct a speed test of your DNS service, your domain name. So I guess, you know, just to back up a little bit for those people who don't remember, uh, you you know, the internet is a bunch of numbers, you know, macsparky.com or macpowerusers.com is not how the internet identifies it. It identifies it as this number, set of numbers. And the domain domain, name services are the places it's like the phone book. And I'm sure George is going to write me about this as well. But basically, it's, it's attaching a name something to a number. And that's the phone book. So when you type it in your browser, or you search it, it, it can go find it. Well, generally, your cable company or your, your internet provider provides that service for you. Open DNS is an open service that will also do it for you. But they have the added benefit that they screen out a lot of like pornography and other inappropriate website content and you can turn this filter on it's a free service and you can make it a really strict filter or a liberal filter or no filter at all and it'll it just works and because you're doing it at the domain name level anybody on your wi-fi network um, whether they're using an iphone an ipad or a mac are not going to get to those sites so as a parent it's a big deal to me to have this getting back to Christine, she doesn't have any kids, but she wanted to see what the speed was like. And she compared it and, In her location, she found it 10 to 15% slower than her cable company. And she said, well, what would you do in that case? Um, I guess if I didn't have any children, I probably wouldn't bother with it. Um, I don't know. I know there are some other advantages to open DNS, but to me, it's the, it's the, you know, the nanny protection that's most important. Um, but that being said, with kids, I will gladly take a 10 to 15% reduction in speed. And I'm not sure that that would be the case at my house anyway. Everybody has a different cable company. Some of those cable companies, their domain name services are t- terribly slow, and you actually get a speed improvement by going to OpenDNS. So y- you can test it out. NameBench is the application you want to try. But if you've got little ones in the house or even, you know, teenagers, I think you should really look into something like OpenDNS. And a related comment um, is our friend Bradley Chambers has been doing some work with this company called Kirby, and that's C U R B I, and they are doing something really cool where you can pay a prescription uh, subscription service, and it it protects um, iOS devices even outside of your network because you know that's one of the problems with kids if you're f- afraid they're getting into trouble. And this is kind of a tangent, Katie, so just bear with me. But like if you've got kids and you, you think they're getting into trouble on the internet and the way they're getting around your open DNS is just going to the cellular connection, Kirby would actually protect that. And it's like six bucks a month for every iOS device in your house. So um that would be another thing I would look into.
0: At some point, don't you just have to, you know, praise your kids for their ingenuity?
1: Well, I mean, it's not that it's not that (laughs) big of a leap, right? They want to get to a bad site and and dad's locked down the Wi-Fi. And if they just flip off the Wi-Fi and cellular, we'll get to the same place. Yeah, that's not that smart. Yeah. You know,
0: but if they can get around Kirby.
1: Well, if they get around Kirby, then I guess, you know, (laughs) how about it?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Let's see. We got a uh, we got a tip about uh, pop clips. And this might yes. be, this might be something that helped me because it's, this is one of the big reasons why I don't use Popclip. And, yeah. and Kyle wrote in about triggering Popclip from the keyboard. So Popclip is a, is a little add-on that you can add to your Mac that, you know, when you do something on iOS and like, let's say, for example, you highlight some text and then something pops up that lets you copy or paste or define or whatever. Uh, Popclip does that on, on the Mac and then gives you a, a whole ton of options. And again, our friend Brett Terpstra, Drink, has added a whole bunch of extensions to Popclip. Um, but Kyle says, I noticed that you talked about PopClip and Keyboard Maestro as being two Mac apps that you value. He said, I would also tend to agree. However, one issue that I have with PopClip is that I had too many actions I wanted to use that I couldn't because I didn't want to take my hands off the keyboard and trigger it with the trackpad and mouse. What I've done is used a Keyboard Maestro macro to open PopClip using an Apple script that's tell application PopClip to appear And then all I have to do is hit my uh, hotkey for triggering uh, the PopClip macro and then arrow the buttons to select the PopClip action I want. No mousing needed. Very cool.
1: Yeah. You know, this is the one I was referring to earlier. Brett Terpstra wrote this up a while ago, and it's so obvious. So. But you wouldn't think about it. So there's an AppleScript command. And a lot of people say, oh, no, AppleScript. I don't want to program my computer. That sounds crazy. But this is a simple, like Katie said, she just dictated the entire AppleScript program. Tell application, open quote, PopClip close quote to appear. That's the command. So once you put that in, there's a lot of ways using something, you know, like LaunchBar, you can tie that to a keyboard combination. And then you get the, the ability to have PopClip without taking your hands off the keyboard.
0: And then uh, Brian wrote in with a tip about uh, dictating to Fantastical because Fantastical was another one of the apps that we mentioned in our uh, 10, 10 greatest apps for Mac Power users. That, that We got a lot of feedback about that show. People seem to have really liked it. But he says, as you know, you can dictate to add events in Fantastical But uh, how do you specify the calendar when dictating? He says, after exchanging a couple of emails with their tech support, I learned the way to do it is to say the word spacebar. So for example, if you want to say lunch with David at noon tomorrow, spacebar forward slash work, it's going to be interpreted properly with lunch with David, noon tomorrow, space work, and it will add it to your work calendar. Um, Unfortunately, if you don't do it, then the forwards, that extra space won't get added. uh, And then it's going to just show up as a, as an all day appointment and not on your work calendar. So it's important to dictate in that extra space. Interesting. I'd never thought about dictating in the the word space bar.
1: Yes. And now that I know this, I'm going to be doing it all the time. Yeah. You know, Fantastic Cal has, like I said in the show, but I mean, it's in my doc. I, I really think they've they've got something special on iOS. Anyway. um, Hey, let's talk about another sponsor. And that is our friends over at the Omni Group. And uh, we've talked on this show a lot over the years about uh, my uh, love of OmniFocus. It's still strong and bright and shining as ever. (laughs) um, Lately, I've been uh, doing some things with respect to the day job that have been requiring me to really get a lot uh, better organized and uh, the omni groups omni Focus has been the key for me it's easier to use than ever with version two that's out you know but one of the digs against it in the past was hey it's too hard to figure out well version two makes that on ramp a lot easier to get going with it um, and they're starting to support all of the platforms now so they're on the iphone the ipad and the Mac. Uh, We know uh, that users sometimes get caught up with the OmniFocus 1 stuff, and you're not going to have that anymore. You're going to get going really fast. In fact, if you go to their website now, they have one called inside.omnifocus.com. They've got a bunch of little short videos that can help you get started. Um, I've also got a video as well, so you can check that out. Um, uh, One of the things I really like about the new one is the awesome new forecast view. So the forecast allows you to see what you've got set to go – in the future day. So like I'm recording the show on Saturday and someone's going to call me later and say, "Hey, I want to talk to you on Tuesday. You got time to meet?" I can look at my forecast for Tuesday and see how many tasks I have. I can even allow it to see what's on my calendar that day. And one of the the power tricks here and I want you to do this if you're going to use the forecast view is you can turn on whether it's just the tasks that are due that day or the tasks that are set to start that day or available that makes a huge difference because then you can see the whole enchilada for that day. And I always recommend people turn that on. It's also easier to review than ever. Um, the uh, You can look at the projects that are pending for review and go through them very quickly. And that's another power tip. If you're feeling overwhelmed in your life and you've got OmniFocus working for you, uh, the magic answer is to sit down and go through a review. And OmniFocus allows you to do that on any one of these platforms very quickly, you can go through and figure out what projects are really on your plate and which ones can get pushed off. So um, go check it out. Like I said, if you're looking for some help to get started, inside.omnifocus.com. I even did an article there and that was a lot of fun. And that'll get you used uh, to OmniFocus. It'll show you some workflows and systems that can get you going. Uh, it's just such a, a key application. Um, this is a sponsor read, but I mean, really, these guys uh, are the reason that I'm able to have essentially two careers at once because this application helps me keep it all together. Uh, go check it out. And thank you, Omni, for the support of the show.
0: So I've gotten a, this is kind of moving into our general question section, but I've got a couple of questions. One was from Wes, and then we just got another one in the chat room. Uh, What is the deal with me going back to school? What am I going back to school for? Why am I doing it? And and what's up with that? And I could have sworn that I talked about this on a a previous Mac Power Users episode back when I decided to do it, but- you haven't.
1: I mean, you said you're going to school, but you haven't really explained.
0: It's a big, super secret. I'm going to school to be a spy. I and that's so. all I can say about that. I mean, that's,
1: that. Why I, that's why you got so touchy when I talked about the alternate, you know, passports, right? Right. Because you probably have, you have three.
0: I have, well, more than that, you know, I can say, like I, stacks and stacks of cash and, you know, all that like stuff. You've got like a
1: box in your house, right? That's got like money, passports, probably like a, a weapon of some sort. Oh, exactly. a list. A list. Right? What, what exactly. is a Klingon gun? What do they call that? Like the gun? A, a disruptor.
0: She... They have disruptors.
1: Okay. Yeah. I got that. Yeah.
0: Okay. So uh, but but in all seriousness, um, I am going back to school to get what's called an LLM and that is Latin for something. Um, and basically what it is, is it is a master's. And my particular one is a master's in law of taxation. And uh, in law school, they do it a little bit backwards of, of the way that you may expect it. You get your Juris Doctor, which is a general law degree. And then if you choose to specialize in a particular field, uh, you can go back and then get a master's, which is typically a one year program. Um, I'm going part time, so it's going to take me a little bit longer than that. Um, and then get an extra specialization in a particular area. Um, probably one of the more popular ones is, uh, in tax. Um, but they've got them in in all different, different areas. And so uh, after practicing for a couple of years, I, I started realizing that there are tax implications involved in, you know, just about every type of transaction, whether it's a business transaction, whether it's an estate transaction, whether it's a, a family law related transaction. So, and just not knowing that piece was, was potentially a, a disservice to my clients. And, it was something that I I wanted to be able to do more of. And so that's what I'm doing. and I should be done. I think summer of of twenty sixteen. And it's it's hard because I don't have any kind of tax or financial or accounting background. I've I've been a litigator my whole career, and so they're they're talking about cash method versus accrual accounting things, and um, you know spreadsheets and balance sheets and all of this other stuff that I'm sitting here going, you know, I don't I don't know how to do that, but you know, I can. You know file motions and talk to juries and do all of those other things, so it it will be a unique skill set um, and i'm I'm planning on using it to do um, more high end estate planning and in, in my practice is is what I plan to do with it, so that's the deal well,
1: Katie, we're all rooting for you uh, now how how much it. longer do you have left? You've been at it like one semester now right
0: um summer of uh twenty sixteen is likely if i if I stay on track that's when i'll be done I think yeah. it's twenty six or twenty eight credits
1: well. It's pretty impressive oh, that you're doing that, yeah, and, uh, so, and holding down a job and doing a podcast and all the other stuff you do.
0: Yeah, it's um, it's 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 been a lot, but uh, one, one step at a time.
1: All right, uh, Sarah sent in an audio comment about ScanSnap.
0: Hey, Katie and David, this is Sarah. I was wondering if you could go over the settings you use whenever you scan documents to either file them away or use them in the future. I recently scanned a textbook for school and used the highest settings available on my ScanSnap. Unfortunately, this turned my 400-page book into a 300-megabyte monstrosity of a PDF. I was wondering if you'd tell me what kind of settings you used, how you compress it, anything like that would be helpful. Thank you very much.
1: Okay, well, that actually doesn't sound overly large for a book of that size to me.
0: Well, but there's still a couple of things that you can do to compress yeah. it down and make your life a little miser- a little bit yeah. easier. But still, uh, running your textbook through—that's pretty cool.
1: Yeah, I was looking at um, I was looking at some of my older law books that I still want to have as reference, and I was looking at the bandsaw in my garage and thinking, hmm. I bet I could just saw the spine right off one of these things. I think I'm going to try that. I'll report back. Okay. Um, but uh, either way, um, also a listener wrote in and said that I think you can take it to like Staples and they'll do it for a buck or something. So maybe I would be silly. But um, so answering the question, um, you can set uh, a lot of settings with a scan snap, or frankly, any scanner that you're using in terms of there's an image quality setting in the scanning tab of the Fujitsu. So you can set it as low as 150 dots per inch. Um, or 300 DPI with black and white, if you're going to do a book. So you take the color out of it um, up to 1200. So obviously if you use fewer dots, the file is smaller. Another thing you can do is adjust the optical character recognition. Like, but if you're going to do a book, I would think you would want to have the OCR so you could search it. What are some of the other things you do?
0: Well, I think when you're when you're scanning a textbook, you probably don't need to have very high DPI. So I would move that slider. I've got that slider by default set about in the middle. You can probably move it down towards the lower end. And it's something that I think you should experiment with a couple of pages at a time and, and see how it affects things. Uh, the other thing is you don't need to be scanning in color. Um, and sometimes the scan snap will automatically scan in color if it sees, you know, maybe you've done some highlighting in that book. Uh, yeah. And it sees that, oh, you've got yellow on this page or you've got green or pink on this page. Page, this is a color page. I'm going to go ahead and scan this in color for you. Uh, instead,
1: Or, or even <laughs> as something as silly as like they put the page number in blue. Right. Like you know, the whole book page is black. The page number is blue. And now the size of the scan just jumped monumentally.
0: Right. And so if you don't need color, go ahead and scan it in grayscale or black and white. And again, experiment with a few couple of scans to see, you know, what is the size difference of a black and white versus a grayscale scan? What is the readability difference of that? I agree with David. I would keep the OCR on. Uh, we did have a suggestion in the chat room to consider breaking them up by chapters. Um, And I like that idea because especially for textbooks, many times the professors jump around and do chapter here, chapter there. And there may be many chapters of that textbook that you don't read at all. Um, So you can probably save some space by just loading up the actual chapters that you're going to use. And then maybe you can always combine those chapters later. There's a very easy automator action that you can use or just drag and drop to combine those chapters if you ever wanted to preserve the whole book. I would also um, throw a reference into uh, Brooks Brooks Duncan's Brook Brooks Duncan's website. Did I say that right? Yeah. Uh documentsnap.com because he's gone through a whole series of different ways that you can configure and set up your scan snap settings um, for optimal results.
1: Yeah and and just to to pile on that point, if you're using a scan snap And I know this is true for other scanners as well. Uh, They have different profiles. So you can have like a profile for textbooks that has some lower settings, but OCR turned on. And then maybe you've got another profile for scanning a photo or a profile for scanning your kid's artwork where you always want to get the color. So it's not that hard to set those profiles up in the application itself. And once you get that figured out, then you can use the best, you know, the best settings for whatever you're doing at the click of a mouse.
0: Uh, so those are those are a couple things you you may so. want to try, but I think experimentation is also good.
1: We got uh, Neil wrote in and said, "Hey, what's the schedule for MacPower users? I like regular releases, and so do we. So we we our schedule is the show really it, it's dated for Monday, but we try to get it out the Sunday night before. Uh, we know a lot of people like it for drive time, so that always." Um, We like to have it out Sunday night. The only fly in the ointment is these live shows because it's a fifth show and we didn't want to put in a separate feed because we thought we'd just keep them all together. And that comes out in the middle of the week on following the first Saturday of every month.
0: Yep. There you go. That's how it works. Um, Henry wrote in about email attachments uh, and what to do with them. And I guess, David, you made a, a comment in a previous show that says for many email attachments, you just leave them in the mail database. Is that true?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, and that was kind of in passing, like if I get, if I get something that's got like a receipt attached for it or whatever, I mean, I wrote a book on paperless, so, you know, I'm saving that somewhere (laughs) and maybe you're good at Evernote or Dropbox or whatever your system is. But, you know, sometimes just little, uh, silly attachments get attached to emails that get sent to me and I don't really have a reason to archive or keep them. I just leave them in the mail application.
0: Yeah. Henry pointed out, and and I agree, that you do need to be careful with leaving attachments in the email application because, number one, that's going to bloat the size of your email database. And maybe you care, maybe you don't. Um, But sometimes those attachments do get corrupted. And if for whatever reason you lose access to that email database, you may also lose access to that attachment. So I think the Advice here is if if it's an attachment that you need or you may ever need again, my practice and I think probably best practice is at the time you get that email and you process that email, you also should process those attachments.
1: Um, yeah, I, I think that and I, I think the statement I made that Henry was relating to, I probably wasn't clear enough about that because I the stuff I don't really care about, I just leave it in mail. If it's something important, I save it.
0: Yeah. Um, There's also a feature, by the way, I'll just point out where you can remove attachments from mail. So if you're finding that your attachments are taking up a large space and they are attachments that you don't need, you can do that.
1: Yeah. There's a setting in the mail application and there's, there's a lot of ways to do that. Uh, Another nice setting is if some of these services will automatically save it. Like our friends at SaneBox can, can yank attachments out and put in a Dropbox for you as they come in. So there, there's a lot of solutions to that problem. Uh, Scott wrote in about antivirus. So Katie, should we dive into antivirus?
0: I think we should, because we get this question a lot. You know, Scott says, I'm a relatively new Mac user, um, and I'd like to know your virus malware app recommendations. No S is perfect. And given that many attacks happen through browsers now, I'd like to know the best app that protects uh, these attacks for um, the Mac. And I'm a little tired of hearing folks tell me that I don't need it on the Mac uh, and believe that they are somewhat delusional. Okay um a couple things that i 'd like to point out here uh one i, I, I i'm a little ear okay I had an issue. My dad was looking uh, two weeks ago for an amortization spreadsheet. You know how you can Google and someone has done like an amortization spreadsheet for am- Excel? Am-
1: amortization.
0: Amortization, whatever.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. That you
0: can... Down-
1: Ta- tax expert.
0: Yeah. That you can... <laughs> one of those things. We haven't gotten there yet. Um, that you can download and, and whatever, and, and a template that you can install into Excel. And he clicked and downloaded that, and it downloaded some... Funky app for his his Mac that launched itself into the login items and i 'm not sure that i 'm getting the true story from him, um, but it was weird, and I was able to remove it it wasn 't that big of a deal, but I was just like, Wow, this is this, this can be an issue. And I asked him, I said, did you, did you, did you double click it? Did you type your, your login credentials? Did you put your password in? And you know, this, this thing ended up getting into, you know, a bu- I, I don't know what it was doing, but he he swears he didn't put his password in. It was very bizarre.
1: I It's funny you mentioned that Katie, because just like a week ago, one of my daughter's friends came over and, you know, everybody knows that they have a Mac problem. They come see, you know, Sam's dad and the, uh, she said i had a virus so i had to you know fix it and i'm like well what did you do and so she was traveling around the internet somewhere and a pop-up came in in her safari browser says you have a virus press this to fix the problem and of course she downloaded and installed an application and i was able to remove it and we we got things fixed but um i think a lot of people fall into that trap and and even like um You know the the message from Scott. I almost think I need a text expander snippet for this because everybody who comes over from the PC they they want to know which virus software to install and which defrag tool they need uh, because it's just been so ingrained to them over the years. Um, But okay, so uh,
0: an antivirus software, let's be clear, is not going to help you if you accidentally download something and install it on your Mac. OK, I mean, that's something that you've actively done. I mean, it may find it after the fact and say, hey, you've, you've downloaded this and it's here on your Mac, but it's not going to stop you from doing that.
1: So what's your recommendation to Scott? Because right. he's tired of people telling him don't to get don't don't use any software.
0: My recommendation to Scott is not to use any antivirus software. <laughs> and, and, there, are there are some there though. are some things that you can do. Um, yeah. My recommendation to Scott is you do pr- you probably at this point, and I'm going to say at this point, um, do not want an antivirus software that's going to be very aggressive about you know going out and and trying to uh, run a bunch of things and log in and and try to auto protect you because in my experience, the you know, it's it's one of those things where the antivirus software are typically worse than whatever virus you may accidentally download. So. If you want to run some kind of, of antivirus software, what I typically recommend is you, you run something that's more passive. What I personally use um, is I use ClamXAV. I, I use the version from the Mac App Store. You can get a version. I put a link in the show notes to the one that's not from the Mac App Store. Um, and it has something called the Century, which will, um, will, will do some kind of auto uh, detection on particular folders. So you can set it to look at your download folder. But I think anything that goes out and is trying to actively monitor the the websites that you're visiting or the things that you you download and, and does all of this auto run stuff, that you're going to find that that's just going to slow down your Mac and be more of a nuisance than the virus that you may get by doing something. And it's likely not going to protect you from most of what you're going to get, which are things that you're going to download yourself. I think that you can do some things to try to protect yourself. I think installing OpenDNS is going to be one of those things because it's going to protect you from some of these questionable sites. Um, I think turning off the feature in Safari that will open quote-unquote safe files after download. I think turning on Apple's uh, gatekeeper protection to keep you from opening uh, unsigned applications is going to protect you. Um, And I think you just want to be careful and and use some common sense out there. Anything else that I left out?
1: Yeah, well, I think it's really difficult, you know, because people, we've got a lot of listeners and it's hard to say you don't need virus software because, um, you know, somebody out there may get infected and say, well, remember back on episode 204 when Katie and Dave or 240, Katie and Dave said I didn't need virus software and now my life is ruined. So, you know, you're going to make your own decisions. If you're going to get virus software, go with a reputable virus company um, and. But, but Katie's right, I haven't run it on my computers for years, and I'm very careful about what I do on my Mac, but I um I have not seen the need. Maybe there'll be a day when there is a need. But as Apple continues to crank down the security on these operating systems, I think it's getting harder rather than easier for people to, to get into your system. I mean, oh. we, we all want to complain about, like, in the App Store, a lot of our developer friends are having trouble because they want to put features that just they can't do anymore because Apple's erected all these sandboxing rules. And it's it's a pain. And as Mac power users, we want the ability for our applications to talk to each other. But, you know, the reason why we have these problems is because Apple wants to make sure the platforms lock, solid, secure. And if applications just simply can't talk to each other, the amount of damage a rogue application can do is greatly minimized. So William wrote in about uh, performing an SSD upgrade. He said on one show I listened to a few weeks ago, you talked about breathing life into your older Mac, and he decided to take our advice. So with his 27-inch iMac that he bought a couple of years ago, he went to OWC, purchased an SSD and some more RAM. Good for you, William. And uh, OWC had videos on how to do the installation, but his question is to do with after the installation. What's the proper procedure for getting my Mac back up and running and utilizing the new hardware? He says, "I know if I have a current backup, I can install the OS and my programs on the SSD, and tell the Mac to use the SSD for a startup drive and stuff like that." Are there any pointers? Um,
0: okay, I'm actually doing this tomorrow.
1: Oh, are you okay. again? For, I for appara-
0: my brother. I have apparently okay. become the go-to person for ripping out your hard drive and putting in an SSD. So, um, but I'm sorry. Do you want to? You want me to tell you what I'm going to do, and and you can tell me if there's a better way because I'm I'm looking for pointers. If there's a better it's, way,
1: it's not that hard.
0: It's not that hard. It's, but yeah. let me let me tell you what I recommended that my brother start to do and the process that we're going to follow. So he went out and he bought one of those 512 Crucials that have been on sale recently. Uh, OWC also makes great SSDs. Um, so the process that I told him is, is, number one, you want to make sure that you have several good backups of your Mac. Um, I gave my brother a gift subscription to Backblaze, so I told him to make sure that that was up to date. He also runs Time Machine on an external hard drive, so he wants to make sure those are good and up to date. Um, I also told him that while his old hard drive is in his machine to go ahead and, and get his machine just the way that he likes it. Um, you know, if he needs to run any updates or if he's been meaning to clear out any cruft or to, to get rid of any files or do any kind of spring cleaning, you know, go ahead and get his hard drive just the way that he wants it now with his, with his old drive in the machine. And so after he gets his hard drive just the way he wants it um, and he's got all of his backups run, then he's going to bring his, his Mac to, to my house to do this. Okay,
1: can I interrupt there just for one second? Go ahead. Uh, One, I would I would caution at that step to be careful. I think uh, making big changes to your hard drive or your system before you do the upgrade could become a problem because you may unintentionally screw something up if you're like making big changes.
0: That's a good point.
1: And, and so and you don't realize it and then you migrate that problem to the new drive. I think in, in some ways you're better off waiting until you've got the upgrade complete and everything's working stable before you start tinkering with the with the hard drive too much. But OK, continue.
0: Yeah. And, and I didn't mean make major changes, but, you yeah, know, just just make sure he's got things kind of the way he wants. Um, and then so he's going to bring his hard drive over after he's done all this. He's going to bring his hard drive over to my house. And then the last thing that we're going to do um, is I've got an external enclosure and we're going to put his SSD in the external enclosure, or you could also do this with one of these, um, you know, drive connection kits where you can put your drive in the toaster or, or, you know, hook it up with with wires. And we are going to do a clone. And you can do that with many utilities like SuperDuper or Carbon Copy Cloner. You can even do it with Disk Utility. Uh, and we're going to do a clone of his internal drive to the SSD before we put it in his in his computer.
1: And on that one, I would just say, don't use Disk Utility, use Carbon Copy Cloner or or, um, super duper.
0: Yeah, and actually, Super Duper, the trial version of Super Duper, will let you do a clone, although you should pay the guy for it because it's great software. Um, so, and that we're going to do, and we're not going to use his computer. It's going to probably take a couple of hours based on the amount of data that he has and the fact that he only has um, USB 2. But we're going to let his computer sit. We're probably going to go, I'm going to make him buy me dinner, although I probably will end up buying because that's the way that it works. But we're going to, um, you know, make, make a Super Duper backup, run out and go get a bite to eat, let it run, and then come back. And then we're going to power down the computer, um, flip it over, and uh, what I've already done is I've gotten the make and model of his computer, I've gotten my screwdrivers, I've got a kit, um, both from OWC sells a kit, um, and I've also got a kit from iFixit, so I know I'm good. Um, I've pulled up the the kit, uh, the instructions from iFixit on how to do this. And I've also, OWC has some great uh, videos on how to swap out a hard drive. So I've looked at both. Um, typically I go with the videos, but since I had that little issue with my Mac mini where I I ripped out the IR port, I always take a look at the iFixit instructions to see if they're anything of note that I need to be especially careful of. So I do that as well. Um, and then we'll, we'll pull out the hard drive and, and swap it out. And because we've done that clone, immediately before, uh, we'll put the SSD in its place. And when we load it back up and he boots, it should be exactly as it was, you know, 15 or 30 minutes ago, depending upon how long it takes us to to do the actual drive swap.
1: Yeah, I've done this probably... 20 times for people over the years, and I've I've never had anything go wrong, so long as I'm very careful about making sure you have an accurate backup, and like Katie said at the beginning, make sure you have a separate backup in case things do go wrong, you can recover. And, and you know, the other thing is the drive you just yanked out of there still works, so if for some reason everything went terrible, you could actually put the old drive back in and then figure out what went wrong and try again. Yeah. Um, it's not that hard. For the memory, it's even easier, like on the iMacs, usually there's a little... Uh, panel or port on the bottom or in the back and you just pop it open and you click them and it's it's really simple Uh, uh, changing the drive in an iMac is is frankly kind of intimidating because you've got to suction cup the the front monitor off to get into the guts and it's very easy to get dust in there and and have problems so if you're going to do it make sure you watch the video several times and know exactly you know what your plan is before you get started on a project like that
0: yeah so Roger wrote in, he actually uh, tweeted and used the hashtag AskMPU, uh, what is the deal with trim and non-Apple SSDs? So I will um, start this off by saying this, that this will not be a comprehensive answer. If you want a comprehensive answer, you could probably go listen to ATP, where they talked about it. Uh, and then the Matt Geekab podcast also talks about this as well. The short version um, is that uh, in OS, well, the short version is that there's a technology called Trim that Apple supports natively in their SSDs. And what that is, is it's kind of a way of, of leveling wear and tear on SSD hard drives because SSDs have a limited lifespan. There are only so many read and writes that you're going to be able to get from the SSD. And this is a very rough overview please don't write in and tell me that I've gotten this wrong. I'm just trying to get the big picture laid down here.
1: Um, And on that, but on that note, I mean, traditionally with with a computer spinning drive, like I mentioned earlier, you know, everybody wants to defrag it. You want to get the blocks together. So a defragmentation would literally rewrite the entire hard drive to make it more, you know, ideal. But with an SSD, you're actually at that point, you're um, reducing the lifespan of the the unit because you're doing extra reads and, and writes that aren't necessary. So that's why this trim technology kind of came to be.
0: Right. Um, and many third-party drive manufacturers, such as, I believe, OWC and I think Crucial, uh, you know, check your drive manufacturer and the make a model of your drive, have already built in trim support at the low level of the drive itself. So although Apple only supports trim at the software level on their Apple hard drives, our SSD drives, many hardware manufacturers support it at the drive level on their drives, and you don't actually have to worry about it. Um, For people who wanted software trim support on their hard drives, uh, there was a very popular third-party utility called Trim Enabler um, that was free that many people used with their third-party SSDs when they put a third-party SSD in their Mac. Well, um, in OS 10.10 Yosemite, Apple introduced a new uh, security feature called—is—is um, is it uh, uh, is, uh, some kind of code signing, where if it, it, it would actually look at the kernel extension in macOS 10, and basically it would look to see that if all the drivers in the system were unaltered by a third party uh, that was approved by Apple, and. This made it impossible for Trim Enabler to work because the way that Trim Enabler worked um, is it was a third-party extension that had to be loaded at the beginning. And I may be getting some of the details wrong about this, but but what you need to know, and I'll I'll put a link in the show notes that explain this from Trim Enabler's point of view, is that based on the current security policies in 10.10 Yosemite, Trim Enabler cannot work with 10.10 Yosemite. And in fact, if you try to turn it on, um, you're going to have some big problems with uh, your Mac actually not booting and you'll get the, the big prohibitory sign uh, when you try to turn it on. So be aware of that. There's, there's ways to to fix this if you do get it. Um, and there's a link again to this in the show notes. Um, it's not anything that a developer can do to support this. This is something that Apple has added. So then the question has become, oh, my gosh, Trim Enabler has, is not supported. Can I use this third-party SSD without trim enabler in my Mac? And the short answer to this is yes. I really wouldn't worry about it. Um again, most of these drives have some kind of trim support built in at the base drive level. I've been using third-party SSDs in my Mac without trim enabler, you know, for long before and probably long after uh and I haven't noticed any degradation. I mean, is it possible that years and years and years from now that not usually uh, software-based trim support may at some point impact negatively the life of my SSD? It's possible, but my guess is that will be long after I've finished using, you know, the useful life of this Mac and this SSD up. So um, I, I really think that this is a non-issue.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. How's that?
0: All right. So short version. It's okay. (laughs) Non-issues. Yeah.
1: I think sometimes as as computers, especially if we've been using computers a long time, we feel this manic need to like get in and fiddle with at the utility level. And I think a lot of times we can do more damage and good, or at least no good and spend a lot of our time and money. So spend your time getting better at the work you're doing and finding ways to automate that than than worrying about exactly how trim your, your SSD is.
0: Yeah. Um, well, we've got a few more listener workflows and tips. Uh, but before we do, I want to take a brief moment to talk about our last sponsor for this episode. Uh, and that is our friends over at Transporter. Um, and you know, if you've been listening to podcasts for a while, you've probably heard us talk about Transporter. You know, Transporter is a device for creating your own private cloud, and you can use it to sync files and folders between your Macs, PCs, and iOS devices. Uh, and using Transporter to sync Files between these devices means you can easily create an off-site backup solution. Um, I've got a transporter sitting here in my home office that I keep files on, including uh, using their nifty um, sync technology. Transporter has a copy of all of my documents uh, because it can keep copies of my documents folder. Uh, and then I actually took a second transporter, and I've got a second transporter that I keep in the guest bedroom at my parents' house, plugged into their Ethernet network. So all of those files are being duplicated uh, over to their network as well. So it's a it's a great way to have my own cloud backup of all of my data. Uh, and so uh, I can also use the transporter uh, to share uh, Mac Power users' files, because those are big files that David and I share back and forth with our editor. And the developers at Connected Data have been pretty busy lately adding new functionality to transporters, probably since the last time we talked to you. They've added new functionality. Uh, and a couple of big ones have been uh, versions. So transporter now will Save versions of files and they do it about once a minute. So, with this capability, you can restore a file from an older version um, and see previous versions of the files. Now, it only saves the changes between versions, so you're not using up a huge amount of space. Um, also, new with the latest version of Transporter, you have read only folders. Uh, this is a new type of folder that's been added, so you can share files with others, but make sure that they can't accidentally mess you up by changing or deleting files in it. Uh, camera uploads for iOS has been around, but they've made some improvements to it. You can upload of photos and videos from your phone or your tablet using geofencing so that you can automatically upload whenever you connect to your home Wi-Fi network. And now you can view thumbnails of those images in the iOS app. And if you're a business customer, you should check out the Transporter Genesis for their business environments. And Connected Data has launched and is now shipping a brand new system for businesses. So if your business needs a cloud solution for file syncing and sharing uh, on hardware that it controls, Transporter Genesis might be right for you. Uh, So if you've got a business, you can even take one out for free evaluation. Uh, So you want to contact them to see if this might be a solution for you. Uh, Listeners to MacPower users can save 10% off their purchase of a transporter up to $35. On either the Transporter or the Transporter Sync model, by using code MPU ten when you buy at filetransporterstore dot com, Transporters come in models anywhere from the Transporter Sync, where you add your own drive, to five hundred gigabyte, one terabyte, and two terabyte capacities, with prices ranging between one hundred and fifty nine dollars and three hundred and forty nine dollars. But you can save ten percent off of that using our code MPU ten. Uh, so thanks to our friends over at Transporter for their support of Mac Power users.
1: We got some great listener workflows and audio comments, and I thought we'd just put them together. So let's let's play a couple of those.
0: All
6: right. Um, Here's Tim. Hi, Katie and David. Last week, I had an automation breakthrough. I routinely get emails from various people around my company with reports or other documents attached. Some are daily, some are weekly, and some are monthly. I read most of these, but the long-term need is archival, so I can come back and look at these for reference. Examples of these are team meeting minutes, daily sales reports, and weekly financial reports. I'm not a big fan of these living in my email archive and would rather have them cataloged in a Dropbox folder. Very often, I will read these on my mobile device and then archive the email message. Getting attachments out of an email message and into a Dropbox folder is easier now with iOS 8, but there are still a few extra steps. Also, if I archive the message from my mobile device and haven't moved the file to its long-term home in Dropbox, I'll forget about it later and have to fish it out. I'm using SaneBox to help manage my email. They have a feature that can automatically download email attachments from your mail and put them into Dropbox. This is done in the cloud, so you don't really need a machine running for it to happen. The folder that SaneBox uses collects the attachments and creates subfolders by sender's name. It's very neat. What I did was I pointed Hazel at that folder and made several rules about the name of the file, which is usually the same with a modifier for the date. The rules take the file and copy it into a folder I've selected for each type of report. That portion doesn't happen in the cloud, but every time I fire up my Mac, Hazel goes to work. If I wanted more immediate action, I could load this up on my home server as well. Now I can archive these messages from my mobile device, and I know that when I get back to my desk, they're waiting for me in a Dropbox folder. I solved this problem with technology that I learned about on Mac Power users. Thank you.
1: You know, Katie, if I don't know what the world would be like without Hazel on my Mac. (laughs) <laughs> but I don't I don't want to live in that world. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's just so great. Uh, and and I mentioned that earlier, the same box has the ability, full disclosure, they're a sponsor, but th- they they have the ability to automatically yank the attachments out and put them into folders. And they work exactly as Tim described, that they'll sort them in to, uh, folders based on who sent them. So that's a natural fit for Hazel you know, just to, to follow that folder. And then I, I don't know if I'd copy them or move them. Tim is copying them. I would be more even tempted just to move them to a permanent location. And that way I don't have to keep two copies of it on my Dropbox. Uh, Mike wrote in about Nuke and Pave for older Max. or he,
5: he called in, I guess. Dear Katie and David, greetings from Naples, Florida. My name is Mike, and I just want to say thank you both for your great podcast. I wanted to let you know that I was having some major slowdown issues with my two 2007 iMacs running Yosemite. Yes, I know I'm pushing the envelope since those are the last iMacs that can run Yosemite, but hey, why not? So the computers are both so slow that I decided to nuke and pave both of them to see if it would help. Following Katie's advice, I did the deed. And wow, it's like I have two new computers. Not lightning fast, but much, much better. Next step is to add some SSDs. Already maxed out the RAM. Thanks again, you two, for a great podcast.
0: Those are think, seven almost eight-year-old machines.
1: Yeah. I think Mike should just keep running those machines. I want him to write back, you know, when we're doing show 350 and tell us that they're still running. Why not?
0: Yeah, I have a family member who has one of those 2007 iMacs. It runs great with the Yosemite. Yeah.
1: yeah. I think I my mother in law has one of our old ones, which is about that vintage. It's the white one. And she still gets by with it. Wow. Yeah.
0: Um, um, and last, lastly, our last one today is uh, we have a comment from listener David uh, with a tip about um, screen readers. So let's take a listen.
2: Hi, Katie. Hi David. This is David from Italy, and I want to share a tip about a feature of iOS 8 that I found out in the last couple of months. This is called speak screen.
4: It's an option in the settings, uh, general, accessibility, and then speech. Uh, I'll let this uh, very feature explain what it does. So hear this:
1: Speak selection, on. A speak button will appear when you select text. Speak screen, on. Swipe down with two fingers from the top of the screen to hear the content of the screen. Voices, speaking rate, speaking rate, 26%. Highlight content,
4: on. Highlight content as it is spoken. And so on. What it basically does,
2: it just reads whatever is on the screen at that moment so for example it works great with safari pages especially long articles or something like that and you can have it playback the article in uh, example when you do something like doing editions and you don't have any more Mac Users episodes to listen to so that is uh, my tip thank you very much and uh, great show
1: I love hearing from international um, listeners yeah, at a certain level. It's hard for me to accept that I'm sitting here in, you know, my little house in Southern California and people all over the world listen. In fact, it's probably a good idea that I don't think about that too much.
0: All right. Well, before we well, wrap it up. Uh, wait, wait,
1: I'm, okay. just, I'm sorry. Just to follow up on on David's comment, though, is. Another good use for that, because I use this as well for proofreading, like when I write a long piece or something that's kind of big, I will sometimes set it up and have it speak the uh, text to me and I'll just sit back and listen to it because... Um, uh, there's something wrong with me where when I proofread a lot of times I read words that aren't even there or yeah. I totally miss things because in my head, I know what I meant. So using the speak screen or, or using the uh, speaking tool to speak the words, a lot of times you'll catch things that you wouldn't otherwise. So that's another use for it.
0: Yeah. Great point. All right. Well, before we, we wrap it up, um, we kind of have this tradition of, of ending these shows with a uh, new tech that we're, we're playing with. So uh, it, it's your birthday. Did you get anything?
1: Um, yeah, I, I bought an app uh, about a week ago called Duet. It's for the iPad.
0: Yeah, I'm playing with this, this too. It was on special. I saw yeah. you used it. Or otherwise, I probably would have picked it.
1: it you know, you've, you've seen these apps before that. Uh, you can attach to your Mac and it it gives you like a second screen for your Mac. And there's been some that have done it over Wi-Fi and Bluetooth. Duet requires a cable connection. So if you've got to have a, you know, lightning connector connected to your Mac and connected to your iPad. But the the net result is it's almost zero latency. It's very fast. In fact, the whole show we've been running here, I've been using a Duet to display the chat room. So I've got the chat room displaying actually from my Mac onto my iPad as we're recording the show. And it gives me a nice second screen. I could see using it for like Twitter or just putting your calendar on there. If there's some things, if you're sitting at your Mac all day and you've got an iPad sitting next to you, it allows you to charge your iPad because it's connected the whole time. And, you know, it's not that expensive and it's really worth checking out. Um, one other thing is uh, I ordered that Canary. It's a security device I talked about a, a long time ago on the show it's a kickstarter so it always takes like a year and a half to get these things but now i have a camera in my house and i'm not sure you know i'm starting to really look into security solutions i'm not sure this is really the one but that's kind of interesting too but i, I guess if i had one takeaway today i would go for do it
0: cool yeah i've I've been using it as well and, and i like it a lot i already have a second screen because i keep my my macbook air up as a second screen but sometimes you want a third it doesn't hurt the thing that I've been using recently is I've been using the Amazon Fire TV stick. I've been using uh, a lot more Amazon Prime video and I've been using Plex and Amazon Fire TV stick supports both. I, you know, they had the special, I think it was right before the holidays where if you were an Amazon Prime member, they had a one or two day thing where you could buy the Amazon Fire TV stick for 20 bucks. And I thought, well, for 20 bucks, why not? And I am really enjoying it. I got a smart TV a couple of, about a month, a couple of months ago that I've put in my living room and it has the ability to stream Amazon video through one of the apps on the smart TV. And doing so much video watching through Amazon now using Amazon Prime, I realized I was really missing that on the TV in my bedroom. So basically for 20 bucks, I now have the video to get the ability to get all this Amazon video in my bedroom now. Um And the actual price is $40. So I think for $40, it's, it's still probably worth it as well. But you know, Apple is is really getting their lunch eaten here by some of these other streaming sticks. It's it's small, it's portable, it's it's pretty fast. The the remote isn't great, but you know, this thing is 40 bucks or in my case 20 bucks and it's got a ton of content on it. And I can fire up my Plex app and I can watch anything on Amazon Prime for free or I can download a bunch of apps. So if I miss something and I want to spend a couple of bucks to to download video, you know, I, Apple needs to start stepping it up here.
1: Yeah, we've been hearing a long time in the rumor mill that they've got some big plan for Apple TV and it's going to get way better. Um, But, you know, you're right. It feels to me like this is one where you know, the time the clock is ticking. So hopefully they'll come up with something interesting. I still love my Apple TV because we have so much content in iTunes. Oh,
0: I do too. Yeah. And and
1: the other thing it does is, you know, the ability to airstream or airplay it, you know, directly. I mean, we have family over all the time. We're sharing stuff from our phones and iPads directly to the Apple TV. But I just feel like you're right. A company like Apple should should be able to do more. And we've heard a lot of rumors. Hopefully in 2015, we'll get something interesting for the Apple TV.
0: Yeah, I'm. I'm also interested about um, the Sling TV service. Did you see that that was introduced at a CES? It's kind of interesting for cord cutters for twenty bucks a month, and and I don't particularly care for the channels that it offers. But you're going to be able to get, I think it's ten channels, including some ESPN and um, some HGTV and CNN that you're gonna be able to basically watch live. Bradley Chambers I saw just got a, a subscription to it. Um and you know, one of the apps they support is Fire TV. One of the apps what one of the platforms they don't support, Apple T V.
1: Yeah. Well that's uh that's Apple. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I, I still have uh, some hope that we'll get something cool for the Apple TV because we use it so often.
0: Yeah. I, but, you I, know, I also you this too.
1: this is getting to the point where you know, I've got an older TV. We have we only have two HDMI ports on our TV. And um, I guess at some point we'll have to look into that. But um, it's getting to the point where you can get two or three of these things, really. I mean, you don't have to pick one.
0: Oh, I know. In 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 my TV, I've I've got my Apple TV, I've got my TiVo, and now I've got this this TV stick plugged in, and and I'm maxed out. I've got three HDMI ports, so I'm I'm done now.
1: Okay, well, Katie, we made it through another live show. We did, uh, yeah. It was a lot of fun. Thanks to everybody for the feedback. You know, looking back, all the great feedback we get every month, I'm I'm really happy with this live show format. And uh, looking at our our poll results, it looks like everybody else is pretty happy with it too. So we're going to keep doing it. And uh, we will see you next month on the first Saturday of the month in March, yeah. whenever that is. Yeah.
0: Thanks and to our sponsors for this episode, uh, Harry's, Smile, Omni, and Transporter. Uh, and you can find links to everything we talked about in this episode uh, at our website at MacPowerUsers.com or at the 5 by 5 site at 5x5.tv slash MPU.
1: Thanks to everybody who came in the chat room today. You guys make the show better. And we will see you all next week.